0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: burrow.com slash ACAST
3: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
0: Right at home.
3: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
4: So often we just think, and this is so true in reading, right? That if we just like get the data, we'll make sense of it, right? That we kind of think our brain's like a computer, but that's not really how our brain works. We actually need to find meaning in the work and. And we need to, have, like, give it some value. And this, to me, is, is really wrapped up in, in motivation. You know, do we see something as meaningful? Is it? Are we really making sense of it? Um, you know, target uh, is that next phase. Um, and what's important about target is that it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Uh, we know from hundreds of studies that it's so important to set goals, uh, to measure ourselves against them. Um And this is really true when it comes to knowledge, right? Like the best predictor of what you're able to learn is what you already know. Develop and extend a really sort of saying like let's talk a little bit about practice, right? If we know learning is a struggle, if we know learning is going to be hard, you know, we need to treat it as such. And so if we're reading, we need to ask ourselves questions like do we really understand this? Could I explain something like this to a friend if I wanted to, you know, tell it. coworker about this cool thing that I read. Could I really explain it to them? And then, you know, these final two phases around relate and rethink. Uh, Relate is this notion that, you know, really when we think about real learning, right, the learning that you and I care about, the ability of people to be creative, it's about seeing Um, analogies about seeing systems. So are we learning in that way where we think about something in a system, think about something in connections? And then rethink is this ultimately like reviewing, reflecting is actually a lot more powerful than we think. And it's a really important aspect to learning both on the thinking about thinking front, you know, sometimes we're overconfident. And then also, right, we just need these quiet times to engage.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story because you actually wrote in and you told me about a new book that you had just written, uh, which was all about learning. And given that this is a subject I'm incredibly fascinated about and the fact that I got to read the book and, you know, you go pretty in depth into a lot of things around education, I knew that I wanted to have this conversation. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up influencing the choices that you've ended up making throughout your life and your career? <laughs>
4: um, I knew this interview would be a lot of fun from having listened to, to your shows, and, and that was a, a wonderful way to start. So, yeah, my father studied um, material science and basically was a, a, a physicist, and um, my mother acquired a number of degrees, one in home ec and one in uh, Catholic theology and, you know, They just were were really all about kind of learning growing up. And also it was just, you know, they'd come here really on their honeymoon in a a literal fashion. My father got a a postdoc here in the the US and then that lasted a year. And then they're like, ah, maybe we should stay for a little while longer. And now it's, you know, 40 years later.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, so, you come from an immigrant culture, and I'm curious uh, You know, – I'm always curious, especially people who've grown up with immigrant parents, like what kind of impact that ended up having on choices you've made as well? Because I know it definitely has influenced me. In many ways, I fought the influence of my immigrant culture, and I'm curious what your, your experience with it was like.
4: You know, it's such a weird thing because I feel like it's just – it's so much an opposite. So I was recently in Germany and when I'm in Germany, I just feel very American, like my legs (laughs) sprawl out and I'm loud. And then it's only when I'm here where I feel like very German, right? Uh Where whether it's a funny sounding name or just like I really like to be on time um, you know so I find it anyway that's the weirdness for me is that when I'm, I'm like oh well here I, you know because I live here and, and you know grew up here and, and so feel you know I, I am really American but I always you know have this identity and then when I go over there as I did you know just recently I'm like gosh I'm just so American and that oppositionalness of it is really you know
2: fascinating to me mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up uh, being on time because I remember flying Lufthansa and thinking, wow, these guys are really efficient about how they do everything.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a very German thing and you forget how German it is. Uh, when I was taking a train there, they would leave you three minutes in between trains to like go from one train track to the other. And you're like, wow, three minutes, you know, it's not a lot, but it's actually enough.
2: Uh-huh. And,
4: you know, when everything runs on time, it, it is, in fact, enough.
2: Wow. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about kind of your childhood growing up, because I know that you've talked about some of your own challenges with uh, education and learning, uh, you know, during that period. And I, I'd love for you to expand on those and, and how those ended up sort of uh, impacting the trajectory that you've ended up going down, because I know there are a lot of parents listening to this who probably have a lot of questions as well about education. And I think your experience was really informative.
4: Yeah, for me, it was really what's motivated my career in many ways. So. Really, the way to start off this story is, you know, January 1982 – I managed in a 45-minute math class to cheat off my neighbor, be totally distracted, not able to read my own handwriting. I couldn't answer some basic math questions. And I know this because there was a psychologist in the back of the room sort of noting all the ways that I was unable to to learn. And I always kept the document that she wrote up. It was, you know, typewritten, uh, two-pager. And I was sort of fascinated for this, you know, slice of fourth-grade math, but more because I just just you know really just struggled with learning and really struggled with sort of like how you learn like how you approach this wow. um and it was a long-standing thing for me, right? Like I repeated kindergarten, I spent some time in special ed, eventually came to some of the techniques that I write about in the book. And I think techniques that many people grow over time, like thinking about thinking, like, do I really know this, uh, being aware about how overconfident we are. And uh, since I graduated from college, I've basically covered education on and off with some little stints on the side. And, you know, when I found out about this research and really like reflected on my own life and, you know, messages that I feel like I wanted to get out there as a person, like learning to learn is I feel you know it's just so key and yet we do it all wrong
2: Mm -hmm. what What prompted the change, you know, because I think for so many people, if they were kind of, uh, you know, really kind of rejected by the system in the way that you were, their response to it wouldn't be to, hey, you know, I'm going to turn this into my career and, you know, really transform from it. So I'm curious, what was it that prompted the change to actually grow and evolve from this? And, And why do some people not grow and evolve from a situation like that? And what would you say to parents whose children are struggling the way you were, which are like three questions in one, I realize? Yeah, I mean, one, I should
4: start off with a confession. And that is, you know, there's a part of me that feels like, you know, I do a lot of writing because that was identified as the weakest spot um, for me growing up. And so, you know, is this this giant project to sort of prove to myself, hey, I can do it. And you'd feel after, you know, two or three books that like, uh, you know, you'd you'd be okay about it. Um, I want to be honest. Right. I mean, I I went to pretty good schools. My parents were crazy supportive. Um, You know, part of the reason that I was sort of identified as, you know, troublesome is that, you know, my brother and sister had really succeeded in school. so, um, you know, some of these were just sort of, you know, family issues. Uh-huh. Um, but I do feel like we just don't give students enough power about how they should learn best. So, you know, I often work, um, at a law school near my house cause there's no Wi-Fi there. Right. So I actually like get a lot done and I see these college students using highlighters and not only that they use multicolored highlighters. And I just want to, you know, these are like our future lawyers and doctors and we can <laughs> say what you will about, you know, you know, being a lawyer today, but these are highly motivated students that really like they're studying hard and the stakes are high for them. And I just want to be like, you're doing it all wrong. Like I, I literally have a research study that I can put in front of you that are like, there's no evidence behind highlighters. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if these if, if this is what our sort of, you know, future lawyers are doing, like just, you know, kids who are kind of muddling about and, you know, aren't being supported by the system. Like, what can we do to empower them? And I think the answer is we haven't done much and we should do a lot more.
2: So. You know, of course, you know, there's no way we're going to get out of this conversation without talking about our, our current education system. You know, I've always said I feel like a failed byproduct of the education system, not, you know, in a way that blames teachers, because I can honestly tell you some of the teachers I had are incredibly influential in my life, like my ninth grade band director. I give him an immense amount of credit for having taught me what it meant to practice. Like I think the reason I'm able to have a daily writing habit is because of what he taught me, and that came full circle 20 years later. But as a whole, I feel that my education, my Berkeley degree, um, my Pepperdine MBA all failed me um, as far as preparing me for for life in the world. So I'm curious, one, what do you think of our current education system? How do you think it's going to change? How do you think it needs to change? And why hasn't it changed?
4: Um, You know, before you joked that you're asking three questions in one and now I feel like it's, you know, maybe a dozen and they're all really (laughs) sort of, you know, so – they're so um, key. I mean, you know, there's one thing, I mean, I think you, you tell this powerful story about how you, you know, came out with this MBA and then, you know, you were like in a in a job market and like, how, how do you figure that out? I think it's going to always going to be hard to really like tightly knit schools and work. And I think we might never really get to the bottom of that, right? Because, you know, to a degree you want to give people like a set of skills and then kind of let them go out in the world and and do those things that are important and do those things that are powerful. Where I find it really – where I find our biggest problem around education is like we just haven't – look, facts matter. I'm going to make a big argument that you know we still like have to memorize and it's painful. And your ninth grade band director was right to teach you the skill of practicing. But like what are we doing to encourage people to be creative, to use – Analogies, to think in new ways, to sort of move beyond facts is to me just like really, it's just so frustrating to see that we're still stuck because it's easier to measure, because, you know, we just like think information is so important uh, that we don't give people these like bigger, more important skills.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think you brought up an interesting point uh, about school, you know, not necessarily being tied to work and maybe the fact that we will never tie the two together, um, which is interesting because I think that so often when we are making choices, at least this is what it was like in, you know, the early 90s or, or mid 90s when I was at Berkeley. It was very clear that, you know, you basically you chose a major. And that major opened up a potential set of career options. And what's interesting is the the possibilities seem to become more and more narrow, right? You choose a major and then it's like, these are the possible careers within the, the context of that major. You go down this career path and this is what's possible down this career path. And, you know, I, I always remember this phrase that my friend A.J. Leon had said to me. He said, you don't have to choose from the options in front of you, yet. That is very much the way our education system trains people um, to think, it, you know, it's very much these are the options in front of you. And these options are going to open up, you know, whatever potential career options you have. So I, I am curious, um, you know, what you would say about that.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, we don't. I mean, I think, you know, you're asking these questions and and to a degree, you know, I reached out to you because I feel your shared sense of, you know, we just don't teach people enough the sense of like mistakes are good. Mistakes are are powerful. And this is true even in like the smallest way. So my best example for this and I'm going to put you on the spot here. And that is, you know, and and I'm going to be aware at the top that the question is is embedded in in, in a certain culture. But um, what's the Immaculate Conception about? What's your answer? The Immaculate Conception?
2: I think it it has something to do with religion. I don't know.
4: You have something to do with religion. Most people are always like, oh, you know, the Immaculate Conception is about Jesus, right? That's like the common knowledge of this. Uh, The other question that people like to ask is like, what is the – what happened to me is I was with a researcher in Florida and was like, you know, what – he asked me, what is the capital of Australia? And I was like, Sydney? He was like, no. I was like, Melbourne? No. Uh, then I like ran through my best ability to like give answers, Perth. Um, and then he told me the capital, which is uh, Canberra. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, no way, that's impossible. Like never, I thought that that was something I should know, right? Yeah. Like it's a big country. Uh-huh. Um, and so, what they call it is this hypercorrection effect, the fact is that the more you're committed to saying, you know, the capital of Australia is uh, Sydney, the more you're going to remember that it is Canberra in the future. So, I think, you know, going back to your question that making mistakes is something that we really need to praise and it's not even like a a trait like your friend aj argues right to like Mm -hmm. think beyond to like embrace um pushing beyond like what's put in front of you it actually helps us like learn more effectively it actually helps us retain information making mistakes in, in this fashion and Actually, what's crazy is that the bigger the mistake, the actual more that, that you learn. And so how are we embracing this on like a, a cultural level where we have schools that embrace that type of kind of ethos, I think is is really hard because mm-hmm. it's so easy to, to measure facts. And we know facts are really the important starting place. So how do we kind of get to that bigger spot?
2: Yeah, no, I, I do definitely want to do a deep dive into the entire framework of how to learn more effectively. Um, but I, I still have more questions around this. You know, one of the things that is interesting to me, um, I often get asked by very young people you know, what they should be doing with their lives or their careers. And my answer to that is you don't have enough data points to make a decision that's incredibly accurate at this point. Because um, you know, like the idea that you're going to know what you want to do with the rest of your life when you're 18 or 20 years old seems pretty far-fetched just because you haven't had enough life experiences to make them mistakes that you're speaking of.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing is that I feel like it's not resolved, right? I mean, I'm curious to know what what you think about this, but I always have this feeling, you know, I have two kids. um, I actually can hear them banging around uh, in in the house here from my home office. And I'm always like, so what is going to be the bar for me being an adult, right? Like, is it hitting 50? Uh, Is it having kids? Like, in other words I simply still don't really know the answer of like what am I gonna do when I grow up I don't actually feel like I'm grown up uh-huh. I, yeah and so in other words right I mean I feel like that bar is always sort of moving for me and and that you ask the you know kids get asked the question you get asked the question but it's also just simply I think we're we're always still sort of playing with our identity in that that way and it's not in it's not simply an easy question to, to answer.
2: Yeah, I, I love that you, you mentioned that we're still playing with our identity in that way because I, I feel like my entire career has been this sort of process of reinventing and, and actually shedding labels, right? Because I think that often what happens is we go into a particular career and the you know, job title becomes the label by which we identify ourselves. Like you introduce yourself to people at events by that label. Um, and it, it's interesting how you know, when you stop identifying with a label, you're able to transcend what's possible within the context of the label.
4: Yeah no I mean I think that that really resonates right and th- the other way to think about it is that right you're really just thinking about sort of the skills that you that right like that bring that type of enjoyment like i really find sitting quietly in a room not interacting with people like wrestling with a thought like that is um, that is enjoyable to me, but there isn't a, a label for that, right? It's not like writer thinker sounds really so like painfully <laughs> uh, pretentious. It's just like a it is, but I, I like I find that fun. It's relaxing. It feels you know re- rewarding to me, and
2: yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the bigger the mistake, the more that we learn. And I'm curious what your research has shown uh, about the difference between people who experience post-traumatic stress and and post-traumatic growth based on the mistakes that they make.
4: Tell me a little bit more about that question and how you're, you're yeah. thinking about it. I want
2: to make okay, sure so, I answer it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can make a gargantuan mistake. So, for example, I like. let's say I fail massively at a creative project. I'll give you an example just for the, the sake of, of our conversation. So, um, you know, we planned an event in 2014 and by all accounts, it was a huge success, you know, sold out in two weeks, you know, 60 attendees, eight speakers, uh, one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. And then in 2015, we were not able to have the same event again because we didn't sell enough tickets. Um, you know, it, It was just a flop. It was very clear. We're going to lose a lot of money. And of course, from that experience emerged my latest batshit crazy idea, which is to plan a conference where every single person in the room is somebody that I've interviewed on the unmistakable creative. Uh, and that wouldn't have come about without the failure of the the second one, you know, and so to me, that's a sign that, OK, I grew from this experience. I learned from this experience and something positive came out of it. But that's not always the case, I think, for a lot of people when they experience a, a pretty dramatic failure, especially a big one. So what is it that separates the person who learns from a big failure versus the one who lets themselves be defined by that failure?
4: You know, um love this question. And love the way that, that you put it because one of the things – so I mentioned the learning example about errors because I find it is such an important way to understand about how we learn. And um, But the way you just framed it and the different way of looking at it is just as applicable because here's the thing. One of the reasons that mistakes help us learn in this very basic way like about – stuff that is not overly important like the capital of australia i mean it's important to australians right but clearly like we can look it up all the time is that it stops you from being robotic Mm -hmm. Right. That's so much of what we do. Right. So like I drive just about every day, clocked hundreds of miles. I have not gotten better at at driving since (laughs) I was like had pimples and listened to Aerosmith. Right. Because like I don't pay attention to my mistakes. I don't really spend enough time sort of like saying, OK, like what feedback did I get here? Why did this make different? And so, you know, I am not like, is it is it what separates, you know, People who learn from their mistakes and who don't learn from their mistakes seems to be like arguing implicitly, right? Like this is about the person, and, and to me, it's just sort of like, have you done this process? Right? You were like, okay, so what did I do wrong? Like, has it you know pushed me out of that like robotic? Way in which we all go around the world because it's just something we need to to do, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you drive long trips, you know what I'm talking about. Um, And so, like, then do we have these moments of reflection where we're like, okay, um, how have we gained from this? How are we really sort of doing something new? You know, what is it... um, you know, give us, I mean, the thing is, is that like errors are really embarrassing, right? Like as you talked about your greatest error, I'm like filtering my own mind, like what my biggest el- um, errors are. And then I'm like, do I really want to share this with all the listeners? Right. I mean, we just, we don't treat them as learning lessons. We treat them as like embarrassing.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's
2: right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight
4: loss. things that we should hold close, and, you know, we don't want to talk about them because we're afraid, ultimately, that it's going to, like, change our identity, right? That it's going to make us uh, seem like we don't really know what we're, what we're doing.
2: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, Okay, well, let's do this. I want to start doing a deep dive into the entire sort of framework of how to actually learn better. And there's, I think, two ways I'd like to approach this so that we have um, something concrete to work with. Um, One is the process of reading, because I know many of the people who listen to this show are are avid readers, as am I. Um, So one way I'd want to approach it is using the concepts from Learn Better to, um, you know, retain more of what I read and learn more from what I read. So how can we apply it to that? And then let's look at another skill. For example, right now I'm learning how to play the guitar. So I'm curious how we could take this framework and overlay it over something like that. Is that doable? (laughs) I'm excited. Let's do it. All right. So let's start with the book. How do we become better learners when it comes to something as simple as reading?
4: Sure. So the book sort of lays out this argument, right, that learning is a method. Um, And so I sort of kind of pulled together a framework based on a whole lot of other researchers, where it's just sort of, you know, you need to find value, you need to target, you need to develop, you need to extend, you need to relate. And then finally, you need to rethink. So should we just do this? Or should we like talk Actually, about your guitar? Or Let's I, do this. I, I love this idea of the concreteness. So I, I kind of I'm excited to, to to dive into it.
2: Absolutely. So let's do this. You mentioned five words uh, that basically overlay framework. <laughs> Can you give us like an overview of each one? And then we'll get into the specifics uh, around my two questions.
4: <laughs> Great. <laughs> so the first step is value, right? I mean, so often we just think and this is so true in reading right that we just like get the data we will make sense of it right that we kind of think our brains like a computer but that's not really how our brain works we actually need to find meaning in the work and and we need to have, like give it some value and this to me is, is really wrapped up in, in motivation you know do we see something as meaningful is it are we really making sense of it um you know target uh, is that next phase um and what's important about target is that it's really easy to get overwhelmed uh, we know from hundreds of studies that it's so important to set goals uh to measure ourselves against them um and this is really true when it comes to knowledge, right? Like the best predictor of what you're able to learn is what you already know. Develop and extend are really sort of saying, like, let's talk a little bit about practice, right? If we know learning is a struggle, if we know learning is going to be hard, you know, we need to. Treat it as such, and so if we're reading, we need to ask ourselves questions like, "Do we really understand this? Could I explain something like this to a friend? If I wanted to, you know, tell a coworker about this cool thing that I read, could I really explain it to them?" And then, you know, these final two phases around relate and rethink. Uh, relate is this notion that you know, really, when we think about real learning, right—the learning that you and I care about, the ability of people to be creative—it's about seeing. Um, analogies about seeing systems. So are we learning in that way where we think about something in a system, think about something in connections? And then rethink is this ultimately like reviewing, reflecting is actually a lot more powerful than we think. And it's a really important aspect to learning, both on the thinking about thinking front, you know, sometimes we're overconfident. And then also, right, we just need these quiet times to engage.
2: Mm. Okay. So when I, when I think about this from the context of reading books, a couple of things come up for me as, as you were saying all of that. So, you know, I'll share one of my really psychotic reading projects that I, I've been working on this year. It's what I call the billionaire reading project, where my goal was to read uh, every book written about, written by or recommended by a billionaire, which, you know, could potentially keep me busy for the rest of my life. And so I'm going through these billionaire biographies, and I'm finding like little nuggets here and there. But um, the other part that it makes me think about is, you know, I reflect often. Often, the content that I write on Medium is about the things that I've read, and the reason I write about the things that I've read is it because it helps me to reinforce the concept. And I remember, in fact, Jim Quick, who we had here, uh, had said, you know, if you learn with the intent to teach, then your ability to learn whatever it is you're learning actually becomes much more powerful.
4: I think he's, you know, totally right on that. You know, researchers love to come up with fancy names for these types of things. And so now there's a name for that. It's called like the protege effect, right? (laughs) by teaching someone else you gain you know a richer understanding the one thing i just quick add to that right is that you know part of the reason is that like it it forces you to think about what you know but it's also this part of like you also have to think about like what is the other person got to understand and they're sort of you know, where they're actually coming from. And yeah. so it makes you think about these types of things in a,
2: in a, in a unique way. Mm-hmm. So another thing that I do, you know, it's funny you mentioned the highlighting, like I tend to underline passages from books that I've read. It's just at this point, such a habit. Like, if you looked at all of my books, I, I realized somebody who, you know, I always jokingly say some girl I date will think I'm either a psychopath or a serial killer based on all the passages that I've <laughs> underlined in my various books. But, um, I am curious, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you said highlighting is not effective, I'm curious, how do I get more out of my reading, because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to stop underlining things just after you know having had our conversation because I you know I also use a note card system that Ryan Holiday uh, learned from Robert Green where I go back and I, I create note cards of the things that I actually want to remember and, and categorize it but how how would how would you change my current reading process based on what you know about learning?
4: Sure so it's not that underlying underlining itself is bad mm-hmm. right It's that we do it often in this robotic way, right? Where we're just sort of like, we just sort of underline it and everything. Yeah. There's the underlining of everything, which, you know, shouldn't only um, unnerve any future girlfriend. It's just that you're not really kind of connecting the work to what you know in a meaningful way. So, let me just sort of go to the contrast, right? So uh, lots of studies have been done on this, um, you know, where just people reread some material and then some people, you know, read it once and then they put the material away and then they just have to engage in free recall, right? So maybe they write it down or just start to, to talk about it. And the free recall is far more powerful because what it does is it makes you stop, think, deliberate and so if you're talking about i don't know let's uh you know the You know the USSR. You're going to be like, oh, you know, you're going to maybe reflect on what you already know about it. You might, um, you know, think a little bit about uh, how it connects to the downfalls of other uh, major regimes, um, whether it's empires. Uh, It's going to make you sort of engage in that in in a richer way. And we know both from you know work just on memory that retrieving stuff from memory is really important, but also this like, are you are you really forcing yourself to think?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that uh, because I I always read uh, before I ever sit down to write. Like I read for 30 minutes and I notice that, you know, my my reading definitely influences my writing. So, like, no question. And I I find that I'm doing exactly what you're saying when I, I sit down and do my thousand words every morning.
4: Yes. And so for you, I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. What is, how does that connection work, right? That you feel like it influences, I often find that I, what influences me is style, but you're going for something much deeper. So
2: just, just tell well, me a little I, bit more I, I, about it, it. it. You know, I mean, style definitely makes an impact if I'm reading a, a certain type of book or a genre or somebody, a writer who has a certain type of voice, it definitely impacts mine. I've noticed that. Um, you know, often what I'll do is I'll, I'll sit down and I'll read for 30, 45 minutes, you know, anywhere between 50 to, to 60 pages in the morning. And I will, you know, in that, process you know of course my mind is is kind of the calmest it is throughout the day but sometimes i'll stumble up on like a quote and that quote will be the beginning of whatever my writing is and it leads to you know three four five six pages inside of a moleskin notebook and uh you know my thousand words and and from that emerge many of the topics that i end up writing about i don't know where this came from the other oh I'll, i'll give you an example okay uh Steve Magnus and a few other guys wrote, uh, I think his, uh, I don't remember his co author's name, but they just wrote a book called Peak Performance. And one of the things that I remember underlining in the book was something that Anders Ericsson said is that his research had showed that, you know, most even, you know, super high performers were not <clears throat> capable of deep, intense work for more than about two hours a day. Yep. And that, sparked an idea for writing a new post um, that I'm already outlining titled why the human brain was not designed to work for more than eight for eight hours a day. So that's an example of what I'm talking about.
4: You know, and I think it is a fantastic example of you sort of learning to learn sort of on your own, right? Because what you're doing is, in some ways, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to riff in this way, but I, I think you're really kind of actually going through the, the learning to learn process, right? Mm-hmm. You find something meaningful to yourself that like says something about your, um, you know, your own experience, how you can interpret it, right? You're then sort of targeting a specific phrase, like a quote that you're like, oh, this really resonates. And by then kind of developing it, with your own thoughts, right? You're sort of saying, oh, is this right? How does this fit with other things that I know? What are kind of rifts that work on this? Where are problems with the author's sort of argument, right? Where, um, can we really only work for two hours a day? There are some days where I seemingly can work a little bit longer, but hey, it's the breaks that matter, or, you know, where are the flaws with that type of argument? And then kind of by putting it out there, right, uh, you're engaging in that type of kind of reflection, or at least, you know, you're putting it out there for other people to respond to and I think that type of process allows you to really engage with materials in deeper ways. you know the issue I find and is that there's so much that we do look so I wrote this book that really tries to argue be an active learner, do the types of things in some ways that that you do um, but I was preparing for a speech recently where I had my notes typed up in front of me and I kept like... I don't know if you've done this right where you just like reread your notes and preparing for the speech because it, it's just comforting, right? You're like, mm-hmm. I just, I want to make sure I don't forget that line. And really I was just engaging in this very passive form of learning, right? I'd be much better off like throwing the notes away and just really practicing that type of putting myself out there, seeing if I can recall the information, see if I can respond to it in a, in a significant, in a significant way.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Let's do this. Let's uh, take a look at this through another context, which is uh, my guitar playing, which is something that I've done. And I've, it's been fun to, to ask people like yourselves how I can improve this process. So uh, I'll give you the, the the basic gist of the story. Um, you know, we're, we're teaching a course called Finish What You Start. And one of the things that I wanted to do as a part of the course to go through it with the students that we're teaching uh, was pick up an, a new hobby. And, and in my case, it happened to be the guitar. And so I, you know, spent a few days fumbling awkwardly, and, and I'm documenting the entire process on Instagram. And with, you know, I have day one, and yesterday I got to day thirty-five or thirty-six, and I, I noticed suddenly the things that I had been struggling with were starting to come together. Like, uh, you know, I think the, the the myelination process apparently has started to take place because my <laughs> fingers are, are moving faster, and suddenly this thing that I was kind of like, how the hell am I ever going to pick up the tempo on this? I'm able to do it now. Um, so I, I'm curious, based on your research. <clears throat> How can I improve my uh, my process for learning guitar?
4: One thing that is a, a very simple way to get better at. Practice is called interleaving or mixing up your practice. So I think when a lot of people are, you know uh, Practicing guitar, you know, they'll block their practice. In other words, you might spend an entire day uh, playing Aerosmith and then the next day, you know, you're I don't know I'm gonna stick to classic rock here. You do all Eric Clapton and then the, the third day um, you know, you, you, you practice your, your foreigner. Um, and then you, you, you just like, you spend your whole day, you know, practicing that one lick or that, you know, one thing when the evidence is very, very clear from basketball to problem solving that you're much better interleaving. In other words, play a little foreigner, play a little Clapton, uh, play a little Aerosmith in each practice session, right? Because one is this thing that uh, is just a theme that I love to hit again and again, we turn into robots and we need these things to surprise ourselves and so just interleaving in that way helps but it also helps us get at like the deep structure of something right so you know when you think about even basic math problems we often get confused you know like Uh, Seven plus five. If I put it in a word problem versus numerical, you'll you'll get a little bit confused because you get confused by the surface features. But the deep feature is the thing that allows us to solve problems, right? The concept of seven plus five equals twelve. And the more that you interleave, right, the more that you mix up Clapton and Aerosmith, the more that you're going to understand that underlying you know, quality in that sort of music that allows you to to solve problems in new ways. And so this interleaving is something that, you know, I've found really powerful for myself. Uh, My practice that I started uh, to try and get better at in, in the same way that you picked up guitar was basketball. And, you know, just a few days ago, I came across a LeBron James workout session, where he practices the same shot like 10 times in a row. And I can tell you that does not work Uh, or it will let me just actually rephrase. Let me tell you that I can go to LeBron and be like, dude, there's much better ways to to practice, and uh, another researcher I think put it in a really great way. When you're practicing, never repeat something. That's the cardinal sin, and uh, it's really stuck stuck uh, with me. Um, even though I, I never got close
2: to becoming LeBron James, <laughs> that's just really interesting because it goes so counter to so many things I've learned about practice about re- you know and the role that repetition plays.
4: Right, but it's not saying that. So one, when you're when you're really And when you're on day one of guitar, um, you know, that, you know, you're going to need to build up to that. But when you're practicing, right, um, you're much better off doing sort of like Clapton, Aerosmith, Clapton, Aerosmith. Right. So just to make sure that if you do the same lick again and again and again, it becomes repetitive. And just to to break it up, to have little pauses. Right. So I'm not saying you shouldn't repeat. I'm just saying you shouldn't. Practice A A A and then B B B. You should okay. do A B A B, so you just become a little bit more engaged.
2: Right, right. Okay. That, no, that makes that makes total sense. So, um, I want to spend the rest of our time <clears throat> talking about one other area that I think is, is of tremendous importance when it comes to to learning. You know, I I meant to ask this right after the book question. Um, I want to talk about the role that technology plays in all of this because I personally don't read Kindle books because I found that I don't retain as much. I, the whole experience is very different if I read something digitally versus um, reading a physical book and. You know some of my favorite authors. People like Ryan Holiday um, swear by physical books, and he's had a prolific writing career. So I, I tend to trust a lot of what he has to say about this. And I'm curious uh, what your research has shown about the impact of technology, the role that distraction is playing in, in learning, and, and you know what are the implications of all of this as we as we move forward.
4: I think it's easy to underestimate just how much. Technology is a distractor. We get more and more evidence, you know, about it every day. My favorite study that I love to cite on this, I think, is is wonderful. And here it is: you got a student in a class who, uh, and it's a lecture class, and they can, you know, visit. You know, the web and and enjoy all the distractions that the the web is built. And what they find and has been found now in, in multiple studies is that those students perform worse. But it actually turns out that even the student who sits next to them and does not have... Access to the Internet also performs worth. In other words, just by sitting next to someone who is engaging in distracting practices actually distracts us and and limits our ability to, to learn. And so in my mind, I mean, I think there's so many benefits to technology. But even when we just think about the difference between Kindle and even the, the differences in, in kind of reading Kindle. So sometimes I read on my Kindle and sometimes I read on the Kindle app on my phone. Hmm. And I just noticed that just being able to flick over to my email, knowing that that option is there makes me uh, – I just don't get into that real kind of deep reading that causes learning because I'm like just if I flick over and if I use the Kindle, I have the same experience than you that I I believe paper books are a much richer experience. But to me, it's even fascinating, even on that specific application, right, whether I use it on a a Kindle, which is, you know, there are no other apps, um, you know, on there, at least the, the version that I have versus the phone. It's just so easy to get caught down on these mouse Little rabbit holes, these little squirrel hunting expeditions. So, what are then, you know, the habits? uh, you, You know, like you like to talk about the habits, you know, that we're creating then to ourselves that you know, make us engage in, in more rich ways, whether it's sort of reading or coding or knitting or anything that we're going to do, if we're going to learn from it, uh, make that experience a, a, a rich one.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I, I've noticed on, on the days that I make it a point to really reduce the amount of distraction in my world, you know, even shutting off my phone at nighttime for a few hours. Uh, definitely the only thing I use my phone for when I wake up in the morning is the calm meditation app, and then I go put it out of the room. Uh, yep. And I noticed just that hour and a half is is probably one of the most productive hours of my entire day.
4: You know, and then, you know, in, my difficulty is like, how do you protect it in robust ways? So like you, that's my time to write. That's my time to get things done. I set it out on my calendar. But, you know, is it a meeting that's going to come my way? Uh, you know, how do I judge, um, you know, whether I should take that meeting and, you I just, I, I find that the most difficult aspect of it. I, it's sort of like vegetables. I know it's good for me, but I don't do enough in that kind of daily way to, to really protect it.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I hear you. Um, well, this has been really cool. Like I I knew it would be a really fascinating conversation. So I have, uh, one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: (laughs) You know, on one side, I'm going to say that sort of, um, you know, ability to 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 learn. But, you know, just reflecting on on our conversation. And I think, you know, it's sort of are you open to, to feedback? Right. Are you going to learn from your errors? You know, as soon as this um conversations over, I'm gonna ask you, you know, what feedback can you give to me? I know I make errors. I'm not able to reflect on them in, you know, meaningful ways, but you know, what are we doing then to get that feedback that's gonna make us better? And we can do it in ways that are structural, like so schools, teachers, or, you know, just asking our friends or people that we, we really um,
2: admire. Mm. Wow. Well this has been great. Uh, where can people learn more about you, your work in the book?
4: You know what's fun uh having a name like mine or yours is that there are not that many other um <laughs> there are not that many other Ulrich Bozers out there, so just you know hit ye old Google and uh, ye shall find me.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring?
0: Because Rustolium's new custom spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?